We've said each week the premise of the series is that sometimes a person's entire life can be summed up in a word. And wouldn't it be great if we could each summarize our life by saying, I was loved. That depicts uh, the way I interpret my life and my time on earth. We're going to meet a guy that is perhaps an individual with more audacity than anybody else in the entire Bible, at least in the New Testament. But to get us started, let's talk about that word audacity, because how many of you, you just don't use the word audacity very much. Can I see your hands? You don't use them? Because just in case you don't know, here it is. Audacity. It means boldness or daring, especially with confident or arrogant disregard for personal safety, conventional thought, or other restrictions, affrontery or insolence, shameless boldness, or particularly bold or daring acts or statements. Now, you may still be saying, I'm not exactly sure what that word is about, so I thought I'd give you some examples, and I'd also give you some ideas for Christmas gifts that you may want to get for some people. So here's some ideas of what audacity looks like. Sorry for the mean, awful, accurate things I said. That might be a t-shirt that you could wear or buy for someone else. That's audacity. Shh, no one cares. You may want that one for someone or yourself. People keep thinking I care. Weird, that's audacity. I'm not always sarcastic. Sometimes I'm sleeping. <laughs> I bet you you know somebody, don't you? How, how many, slip your hand up. You know somebody you'd like to, to give that one to. <laughs> and then some people say, I say inappropriate things. I prefer to think of it as radical honesty. <laughs> those are always those people that I just shoot straight from the shoulders and tell it like it is. You know, that's usually not the way we want to hear it like it is. At any rate, so audacity. I want to introduce you to a man that, as I said before, I think is the, has the greatest audacity of anybody, perhaps in the entire Bible, certainly in the New Testament. So go to the Bibles that are near you, to page twelve fifteen, I believe is one. I'm sorry, twelve seventeen. And you'll be looking at the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 23. And I'm going to kind of take you through a few passages in the Gospel of John. But when you get to the Gospel of John, actually start in verse 1 first so you get your, con your context. John 13, verse 1, it's the very last night that Jesus is going to be with his disciples. And in fact, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 all take place that same evening. Anyway, just before the Passover feast... Feast, Jesus knew that his time had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having, what is the next word? Loved, having loved his own who were in the world, he now, what is the word? Loved them to the very end. So Jesus is gathered with his disciples for what we call the Last Supper. Judas is still amongst them. And it says, he loved his own. And he loved them to the very end. Tuck that away as we go on. Look now at verse 23. And here's where we meet Mr. Audacity. One of his disciples, the one, what does it say? Jesus loved. This, this guy describes himself. I'm the one Jesus loved. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was at the table. At the right, excuse me, to the right of Jesus in the place of honor. So Simon Peter gestured to the disciple to ask Jesus who it was he was referring to. Jesus had already told them somebody was going to betray him. Verse 25. Then the disciple whom, what does it say? Jesus loved. Leaned back against Jesus' chest and asked him, Lord, who is it? Now let me give you a clue. 
the writer of the Gospel of John, the human being that the Spirit of God chose to write the Gospel of John is the one that's describing himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, that's audacity. We just read in the first verse, it says, Jesus loved them all, and he loved them to the end. That even included Judas. But this guy, who is the writer of the Gospel of John, he says, I'm, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. Let me take you further. Look at page 1225. It'll be chapter 19, verse 26. Chapter 19, verse 26. Now Jesus is on the cross. He's looking down. So when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple who, whom he loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, look, here is your son. It goes on to say, he said then to his disciple, look, here is your mother. From that very time, the disciple took her into his own home. This disciple who identifies himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, he took care of Jesus' mother evidently for the rest of her life. Look at, if you would, just flip a page to chapter 20 and let's look at verse 2. This is after Jesus had risen from the grave. Mary reports it. So now Peter and the secret disciple are in a race. So she went running to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and told them, they have taken the Lord from the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out to go to the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple, meaning the disciple that Jesus loved, ran faster than Peter and reached the tomb first. Audacity, the disciple Jesus loved. Look in chapter 21, verse 7. This is after Jesus had risen from the grave. He appeared to his disciples and made breakfast for them on the shore as they were out fishing. It says, then the disciple whom, what does it say? Jesus loved. Said to Peter, it's the Lord. So Simon Peter, when he heard that it was the Lord, tucked in his outer garment for he had nothing on underneath it. And he plunged into the sea. Don't, don't, don't take that uh, to the worst extreme. Let's go on. Look in chapter 21, verse 20. Peter turned around. And he saw the disciple, you tell me, whom Jesus loved, following them. This was the disciple who had leaned back against Jesus' chest at the meal and asked, Lord, who is the one who is going to betray you? Now, mind you, the writer of this gospel, the one that just wrote that, is the one that leaned back against Jesus at the supper. And he's saying, I'm the guy, I'm the, I'm the disciple Jesus loved. I'm, I'm the one that leaned back against Jesus, sitting in the place of honor, and asked, who is it that's going to be the betrayer? And then if you would glance one more time, verse 24, it says, this is the disciple, meaning the disciple who Jesus loved, who testifies about these things and has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So the writer is the apostle John. He's credited with writing this gospel, but he... He designates himself audaciously the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, where does he get this kind of audacity? Now, John, we know, wrote other portions of Scripture. He wrote the book of 1 John toward the back of the New Testament. It's five chapters. Then he wrote 2 John. It's one chapter. Then he wrote 3 John. It's one chapter. Seven more chapters, John writes, 132 verses. And out of those 132 verses, he uses the word love 52 times in 132 verses. We know also that he is the very last apostle to live. He is 
exiled for his devotion to Christ on the Isle of Patmos. And there he receives from the Spirit of God the book of Revelation. And he is the one that penned the book of Revelation. But he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. Where did he get this audacity? Well, let's look a little bit into his past. Let's get a feel for John. Here's what we know about him from Scripture. We meet him at the very beginning when he's a follower of John the Baptist. John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And John goes and starts following Jesus. Jesus named him early on, him and his brother James, as Son of Thunder. Now, where do you think you give, you know, why do you give a nickname like that to somebody? Son of Thunder. Do you know some thunderous people in your life, some explosive people? Evidently, had he been alive today, he'd have been riding a Harley or something with, you know, on a, one of those jackets on the back, Sons of Thunder, you know. <laughs> so he was not always the disciple of love. He was one of the only ones there, along with Peter, when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. It was just Peter, uh, James, and John. In Luke chapter 9, verse 46, there are some individuals that are trying to cast a demon out in Jesus' name. John comes up to them and tries to stop them, and in fact does stop them. And then he goes and tells Jesus, he said, hey, these guys are trying to cast a demon out in your name, but they're not one of the disciples. <laughs> he was a little confront confrontational. And Jesus says, hey... He that's not against us is for us. And Jesus kind of tunes him in a bit. But you can see he was not a real gentle guy in those days. And then in Luke 8.51, Jesus is going to have a time where he's going to meet with the Samaritans. And they're not real receptive. And so he comes back to Jesus and he says, Lord, would you have us call down fire from heaven and burn them all up? <laughs> he's been walking with Jesus for years and he, and he thinks Jesus would want to burn people up. So you can see John had a growth cycle to go through. Then at the transfiguration toward the end of Jesus' ministry where Jesus let his inner divinity shine out through his skin and Moses and Elijah appeared, it was John along with Peter and James, John's brother, that were there together to see that. So that, that's his background. Now, we're talking about love. He identifies himself as the disciple Jesus loved. But what does love mean to us today? When you hear the word love, what comes to your mind? Uh, we, we have one word in our English language for love. You know, I love my dogs. I love, you know, my wife. I love my kids. I love you people. You know, I, I love a certain place on my couch. I mean, so I use a, a single word for love. But you have to figure out the context to know what I mean. Because obviously I love my wife and my dog in, in a different way. Just as you would. The New Testament, however, was written in Greek, and they had very specific words for specific kind of loves. Let me just take you through it quickly. One word they had was storge, and it was familial love. Familial love. It was things you were familiar with, you liked. It could be family members. That's a different kind of love. Philio. We get our word Philadelphia, the city, the city of brotherly love. Philio is friendship love. We all understand what that is. They had a word eros. Now, eros is not found actually in the New Testament. However, it was used in the, the culture of the day for romantic love. We all understand that. But then there was this word that John used 52 times in 132 verses. And it's this agape. And agape love in Scripture is very unique. It's God's unique love. It is an unselfish devotion to others 
without seeking anything for yourself. You love them just because of something in you, not because they deserve it in any way, shape, or form. The closest that we can come to it, and this doesn't really, really uh, explain it sufficiently, is when a parent, a set of parents have a newborn baby, they immediately love that newborn baby, even though the newborn baby hasn't done anything whatsoever to deserve the love, hasn't spoken to them, hasn't done a favor for them, hasn't done anything at all other than be. It's it's the baby is loved not because it earns it or deserves it. The baby is loved because the love is already existent in the parent, and the parents are devoted to that baby's highest well-being and happiness. That's God's kind of love, and that's the one that John uses. And he understood when he said, I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. That's the word that he used. That's the way that he meant it. Now, John was realistic. He lived in a world where, you know, love was not pervasive. It was a hard world. It was a world that crucified Jesus. It was a world that chased down the followers of Jesus, and they persecuted them profusely in the early years. So John was a realist. And so how could we, perhaps, how could we live, how could we be like John and the word that would describe our life in one word, I was loved. I mean, wouldn't that be the most wonderful thing? Let me tell you something about you and I as a human being. You and I, I don't care who you are, I don't care how loved you feel, you never and I never get enough love. We, we are like sponges for love, and the reason is, is we're made in the image of God, and God himself is love personified. You and I always want to be loved. We want to be loved by everyone. We want to be loved all the time. We want to be treated with love everywhere. In every situation, we want it to be a loving, kind, respectful sort of a circumstance and situation. But you know, and I know, it's not always the case. Let me go further to show you something unique about human beings that shows that we are made by Christ and for him, and apart from him, life never coheres, that we're made in the image of God. You can let a human being have all the success that life can offer. They can be loaded with money, enough that they couldn't spend it in a thousand lifetimes. They could have the greatest of talent. They could be handsome, beautiful, attractive. They could be popular. They could be powerful. They could, in essence, have it all. But if they did not feel, feel, Loved. How many of you know they'd be unhappy if not miserable, right? Right? Isn't it true? They could have it all, but if you don't feel loved, you're unhappy if not miserable. Let me go a step further. When people don't feel loved, it can produce some very, very dark, hurtful things, not just in themselves, but in their interaction with others. When people don't feel loved, they often become angry. They often become bitter. They often become even dangerous and hurtful to others. It's that old saying, you know, hurt people hurt people. When you don't feel loved, you're hurt. And when you're hurt, you often become hurtful to others. We have to have love, folks. We, we need an atmosphere of love. We, we need a steady appetite of love. It's what makes us unique as beings that are made in the image of God. So what's John's secret and how might we partake of it? How, how might we go through this tough life of ours where often we don't feel or are made to feel as loved as we'd like to feel at least, how can we go through this life and maybe, just maybe, 
be able to identify ourselves like John loved, the disciple Jesus loved. Well, it calls, first of all, for, for patiently accepting a life of imperfect love. And I know this sounds contrary to what I said. Because the truth is, God made you. He made you for a world. He made you for a life. He made you for a universe. He made you for an eternal existence where you would always feel loved and valued and liked and wanted and enjoyed and accepted all the time where you would be forever safe forever you would know that people really admire you that's what you were meant for it was never meant to end it was meant to be everywhere all the time but you know and I know that's not this world that we live in today and it hurts us it jolts us inside so how can we possibly cope with this? Well, as crazy as it sounds, we have to patiently accept a life of imperfect love. Realistic expectations are so critical. If, if we're expecting that love that God promises ultimately, if we're expecting it knowingly or unknowingly now, we'll be disappointed, we'll get dark inside, and we'll usually become hurtful people. Here's a few verses that just reinforce this notion. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 19, verse 22 it says, what a person desires, we all do, we all desire it, is what? Unfailing love, perfect love, unfailing love, unstoppable love, unquenchable love, unfailing love. Again, in Proverbs, it says, many claim to have unfailing love. Oh, you, you know, we, we pledge it to each other. I'll love you forever. Nothing will ever stop my love for you. I'll love you to death. But we know that that doesn't always hold up. Many claim to have unfailing love, but a faithful person who can find so here we are, we're in this, in this predicament. We are beings that, that desperately hunger for love. We want love all the time. We want to feel love, but we know that love is something that you can't always depend on. You can't always get the love that you want. You don't always know that you're going to have the love as long as you want it. You know deep inside that love can abandon you and become unfaithful to you at any time. The love can reject you for any number of reasons. So we're scared. We're needy and scared simultaneously. Look at another verse in the book of Isaiah 54. This gets us going in the direction that we need to go in if we're going to patiently accept this life of imperfect love now. It says, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed. And this is just giving a picture of a turbulent, difficult life. It could be any number of circumstances. This is poetic language to describe it. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet, this is God speaking, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken. My covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. John could go through the ups and the downs of life. Scripture tell, or Extra biblical literature tells us that at one point he was persecuted so severely they took him and threw him into a, a boiling cauldron of oil trying to kill him, and somehow he survived that. John knew no matter how people treated him, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. And that was the rock that enabled him to patiently accept a life of imperfect love. It's the same for you and I. If we're going to go through this life and maybe be able to say, I'm the beloved, I, I was loved, we've got to accept the fact that it's going to be an imperfect love that we receive from other human beings. Even when human beings love us the most and are trying their hardest, their love is not going to meet all our needs. It's going to be imperfect. And so we've got to anchor ourselves to the one perfect love that we can always count on. 
One more verse in Psalm 26, verse 3. David, who knew so much about God, and yet David didn't have the New Testament. He didn't have the revelation of Jesus Christ suffering and dying for us in his sacrificial love. He didn't even have most of the Old Testament, but he knew God. And he says these words. He says, I have always been mindful of your unfailing love. He's speaking directly to God in the psalm. He says, I've, I've always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in what? Reliance on your faithfulness. What David learned so far back then, John learned, and we must learn if we're going to be able to accept the imperfect love in this particular world we live in, is that, that God's love is unfailing, but I've got to be mindful of it. If I don't keep it on my mind, if I don't remind myself of it, then I can easily get distracted, and I can easily get wounded, and I can easily get disappointed because the love that I'm looking for, I don't always find, at least I don't find it in ways that make sense to me, maybe. It might be there. I'll touch on that later. But if it doesn't make sense to me, it just as well not be there. But God's love is there. Listen, folks, the God that created us is here by spirit today pleading with each of us. Anchor your deepest love needs in me. My love for you is unfailing. I'm not going to be shocked or surprised by who you are, by what you've done, or anything you will do. My love for you is unfailing. Jesus that night had the same love for Judas Iscariot, who would betray him, as he had for anybody else. Tragically, Judas is an example. You, some of you got to hear this. Some of you really got to hear this. So, so, some, some of you, you're, you're, in a, you're in a dark place, and you feel like you've been cheated. You feel like life's dealt you a bad hand. And you're angry and you're bitter and you've got a little bit of low-grade anger and a little bit of low-grade depression because you feel like you should have been treated better. You should have been loved better. Listen, you can have, I can have all the love that God himself can offer and that doesn't mean a thing if I don't let it penetrate into my heart. Judas had the same love given to him by Jesus as all the other disciples, as John did. But it never changed him, never changed his heart. We've got to be willing to let God's love permeate to the deepest levels of our being. So if we're going to go through this life like John and be able to to some degree say we are loved, it calls for patiently accepting a life of imperfect love. But then we turn the corner a bit. It calls for anticipating that the love we long for, the world full of love, the, the universe, the unending love, the perfect love that we want to see in every eye and hear in every voice, that we want to meet in every corner, in every place, in every situation, that that love exists and Jesus' re resurrection from the grave guarantees that it will be ours if we're his followers. And so we need to to really start to anticipate it, dynamically anticipating a life of perfect love. Now, anticipation is something that we humans do really good. You know, it's just like right now, some of you are anticipating eating lunch. Be honest. How many of you are anticipating eating lunch? <laughs> and, you know, some of you are you're anticipating your birthday. You're anticipating uh, Thanksgiving. You're anticipating your favorite team winning today. By the way, I I'm a prophet today. Uh, I'm going to predict... And you can stone me as a false prophet if this does not happen. I am predicting my team will win in the NFL today. The Patriots are playing the Redskins. You don't know. You don't know. Both are my teams. <laughs> so my team's going to win today. <laughs> 
the Redskins I was born with, the Patriots I chose. <laughs> so we're good anticipators. We anticipate vacations. We anticipate a pay, paycheck. And, and, and listen, anticipation is dynamic. It gives us energy. It gives us endurance. It, it gives us balance, you know, when we're going through situations and circumstances that we don't exactly like. So dynamically anticipating a life of perfect love. Little book of Jude in the New Testament, it's only one chapter. Jude says this. He says, maintain, notice, it's my responsibility to do this. It's your responsibility. God doesn't call us to do something we can't do, so obviously we can do it. Maintain yourselves in what? In the love of God. What is Jude saying? He's saying, I've got to keep reminding myself. I have to talk myself down off the ledge when I'm feeling unloved and unappreciated and disrespected. I have to keep reminding myself, God is with me. He loves me. I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. I have to maintain myself in the love of God while anticipating the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that brings eternal life. What is Jude talking about? He's talking about when Jesus comes and brings in the eternal life that he gives to his followers and fills the universe with the eternal love of God that we were all meant to live in forevermore. He's saying we're to anticipate that. It's coming. Listen, this world of ours where love is so imperfect and heartbreak is so common and we all carry our share of hurts, it's got a real short shelf life. But eternity is going to be filled with the love that you've always dreamt of, the love you've always wanted, with the love that some of us have completely given up on, haven't we? Some of us have tried, we've made ourselves vulnerable, we've opened our hearts, we've opened our lives, we've ached so deeply for someone to love us. And convince us that we're loved and make us feel loved. And then it, somehow it all got turned upside down and it was taken away. And, and the joy that we felt for a short time does not compare with the pain that we have felt ever since. And some of us are so scared now to love or to feel love or feel loved that we've completely given up. And we've closed our hearts and we put up our protective shields because we've somehow concluded that it's less painful to never even desire love or open ourselves for love or ever believe that we're loved than to take the risk of believing it only to find that it's not true or that the love is not the kind that we need. In any case, some of us have given up. And I just know this. I just know that there, there's a loving God here this morning that's, that's begging some of us, open your heart back up. I, I'm going to go a step further here. I just want to say something. Some, some of you are so scared of being hurt. You, your, your heart's been broken so badly. You've been disappointed so badly that you've closed your heart because you're afraid of being hurt again. But here's my pledge to you. You trust me on this one. I don't care how bad you get hurt by risking vulnerability to love and be loved. I'm advocating open your heart and your life back up. Be vulnerable to love, to want love, and to be loved. 
Be vulnerable because even if you get burned, even if you get your heart broken, even if you're betrayed, even if you're abandoned, I'm telling you, the Lord Jesus Christ will never leave you, never forsake you. He is more than capable, more than capable of healing your broken heart, my broken heart. More importantly, we will come through that heartbreak, not being people that are more afraid of love being taken, but ironically, we will come out of that heartbreak as people that have an increased capacity to give love to others, whether they give us any love in return or not. Some of you just need to hear that, man. You, you've been living in the torment of insecurity. You, you've done all these dances in your head a million times over to try to protect yourself from being hurt. And I'm telling you, let yourself be hurt better, as they say, to have loved and lost and never loved at all, better to be hurt but to trust Christ for your healing and that he can more than suffice for whatever pain you might receive. David again says this in the Psalms. David says, but I'm like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. We need to dynamically anticipate God's everlasting love. That's your future. That's your life if you put your trust in Christ and you're his follower. The New Testament tries to articulate what we're to expect but can't quite find words. It says, just as it is written, I'm going to keep talking louder, just as it is written, <laughs> things that no eye has hear, seen or ear has heard or mind imagined are the things God has prepared for those who love him. I have a theory. It's nothing more than a theory. You don't have to buy it. Why did John have such an audacity of all the disciples? And why did they put up with it, you know, when he's going around saying, I'm the disciple Jesus loves? I think maybe his audacity was because he loved Jesus more, more deeply, more clearly than all the rest of the disciples. I think there's evidence for that. Not only did he love Jesus more than the rest of the disciples, I believe that he understood Jesus way better than the rest of the disciples did. Let me just share something with you. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're called the synoptic gospels. They, they sound a lot alike, those synoptic gospels, as the rain comes harder. They start with Jesus' early heritage and so forth, and they tell the narrative of his birth and so forth. But when you read the gospel of John, the disciple that Jesus loved, you know how his gospel starts? Totally different. It starts like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's talking about Jesus. He goes on in the 14th verse. He says, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. 18th verse. And we saw his glory, the glory as the only one that shows the Father in fullness and in truth. John knew he was walking around the earth with God. I don't think the rest of the disciples did until much later. He knew that when he was sitting around a campfire and, and they're eating whatever they ate in those days, he's looking across and he says, I know who you are, Jesus. And when I look into those eyes of yours, I see the eternal, omnipotent, all-knowing, all-powerful, inexhaustible, unstoppable love of God. And he had the audacity because he so fell in love with that God that he met in Jesus. It was because I think of his love that he could feel the love of Jesus more deeply than the others. 
Here's a truism. You can take this one to heart. The more you actually love Jesus for himself, the more you fall in, in love with Jesus for himself, the more you will feel, I'm emphasizing emotions, feel his love for you. And the more comfortable you might become someday saying, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. One more time about anticipation in the New Testament book of Titus. It says we look forward. We're beings that have this capacity to look forward and gain energy as we anticipate. We look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. That's when the universe will be full of the everlasting love that you and I have always wanted for all time. Now I'm going to close in a kind of an unusual way. I'm going to, I'm going to share a couple quotes with you from an atheist, a person that says, no God for me. Here's what he says. Elaine de Botton, a famous British atheist, said, I love the concept of original sin. Original sin is where, you know, Satan came into the Garden of Eden and he deceived Adam and Eve to think that God was, you know, not to be trusted, that God was not loving and sacrificial, and they broke trust with God. He says, I love the concept of original sin, the idea that we're all fundamentally what? You'll never meet a human being in your life that's not broken. Get close enough to them, I promise you. I don't care how good they look on the outside. I promise you, they are broken on the inside. This is our lot. He says, we're all fundamentally broken and fundamentally incomplete. Of course we are because we're made by Christ and for Christ. And until we're reunited with him, we're incomplete. He goes on to say this. Original sin seems to be such a useful starting point. Imagine a relationship, and this happens frequently, in which two people think they're great, you know, perfect. That's going to lead to intolerance and terrible, what is the word? Think about it. Think about what happens, you know. Two people meet, two, two young people meet. This is easiest to look at. And, and they're like, oh, my goodness. Just being around you is, it's the world to me. If I could just spend my life with you, you know, everything will be perfect forever. You're wonderful. You're my soulmate. You complete me, blah, 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 you know, all this stuff. <laughs> Folks, when we think that way, we don't mean to, but, but we have hung a burden on another human being that they cannot bear. We are unknowingly expecting them to meet the deepest needs for love that we have as a human being. And even if they love you with all their heart, they will never, ever be able to meet those deepest needs. And like that atheist said, if I could go back to that slide, we'll end up with intolerance, disappointment, when, we're re when it's realized that we're not perfect. We're not capable of loving that person perfectly the way they want to be loved. It's, it's just not possible he goes on to say this he says whereas imagine a relationship that begins under the idea that two people are quite what is the word broken and therefore they need forgiveness that's that acceptance of imperfect love listen when you and i have the assurance of god's unfailing love deeply registered within us to the point that we feel his love then the love that other human beings offer us in whatever form it's offered, no matter how imperfect it is, it's grand, it's wonderful, it's lovely, it's icing on the cake. As we anticipate that day when finally, finally the deepest longings of our heart for love 
will be eternally, everlastingly met in everybody we meet forever, forever. So here's the thought that I want to close with. There are people, Judas was one. I'm not trying to say that you're or anybody in this room is like Judas, but even though Judas was immersed in the love of Jesus, it never penetrated his heart. What am I saying? I'm saying Judas was truly loved, but it didn't matter. He didn't believe it. It didn't seem to matter to him. There are people, please listen to this part, because this might be the very part that the Spirit of God has been waiting to penetrate into your heart for your good. There are people, might be you, might be me, there are people that are truly loved, truly loved, but they don't believe that they're loved. It doesn't matter what anybody says. It doesn't matter what anybody else does. They don't believe they're truly loved. It might be because they've been so wounded and they're scared of getting hurt again. I don't know, but I just know it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. And until they are willing to be vulnerable enough to believe that when another human being says they love them or tries to show they love them or give their imperfect love to them, until we do, we cheat ourselves immensely and we bring upon ourselves unnecessary pain. More importantly, our own hearts shrivel up in their capacity to give love, ironically. We're angry at the love we don't feel and then we become incapacitated to give love that we want to feel. But you can't feel love unless you believe that you're lovable. And it has to start with God. What if, I mean, just what if, what if for the next 30 days, morning, lunchtime, before bed, we went through a silly little exercise and we literally said this out loud. And you can't say this unless you've trusted Jesus and you actually are his follower. But if you are, you just said it. Morning, lunch, and evening. I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. What if you did it every day for 30 days? I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. I wonder if it might start to penetrate our hearts and minds to the point that we'd start to feel loved. And then it might enable us to receive imperfect love from other people to believe that their love is sincere and authentic and receive it in and maybe start to feel it too and maybe not be afraid of being hurt it's a worthy consideration i think for all of us in this room and i know the spirit of god is here pleading with us to take this journey to the point where we can say i'm the disciple that jesus loves let's pray your spirit is so present, Father. I, I thank you for it. And I know you're at work to bring healing to our hearts and peace to our troubled minds. May it be so. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.